Well, welcome back. As we head into Hour 3, it's a delight to bring on the show, as we do most Mondays, Brandon Weikert. Uh, he is the author of Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower. He is the author of Biohacked, China's Race to Control Life, and most recently, and perhaps most uh, relevantly for uh, these days, The Shadow War, Iran's Quest for Supremacy. You can follow him on Twitter X or Twix at we. The Brandon, he is a uh, senior editor at 1945.com, where he writes on all forms of you know, all sorts of issues. Brandon, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. It's good to be back, as always. Thanks. Unfortunately, it's under, uh, you know, these circumstances in the Middle East. I know. And I, I want to talk just about America's cultural view um, of war and how wars are fought. Um, I also want to talk about your book, The Shadow War. You know, you open up Iran's quest for supremacy. You open up with a discussion about how frequently the calls in Iran of death to America are, how, 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 how widespread it is. And many of us know that it happens in the parliament, the Majis and all that. But um, it's really quite prevalent throughout the, the country. And I'm just wondering, Brandon, if that's a template and um, evidence of just a general way of thinking. Some people say, "Well, you can't over, you know, you can't you know, over overestimate what that means. It's just kind of a chant." But it is part of the cultural thought process, and maybe we underestimate it a little bit—the enmity towards America and the West that is coming from the radical Muslim movement. What do you think? Well, well, Seth, it's part and parcel of the Iranian regime. Uh, you know, this is. I, I spent a lot of time talking about the ideological underpinnings in the book yep. uh, about about the, the movement in Iran, the Islamist movement, because it's so important to understand what we're up against. Uh, we are up against a group of people who are not rational in any way, shape, uh, that they want to destroy. They want to destroy the Israelis. They want to subjugate their Sunni Arab partners. They want to wage war upon their their American and European uh, neighbors. Uh, this is not uh, a geopolitical issue only. Uh, this is uh, also a a religious issue for them or their interpretation of religion. So this is a huge problem that we're facing, and it's not going to be resolved at all through diplomacy or um, uh, you know any other form of of rational discourse. Well, that that kind of raises a real interesting challenge for the West, whether it's the United States of America, um, or for that matter, Israel to a slightly lesser degree, but not a zero degree, which is how a secular or at least in a, you know, a, a generally secular society understands or misunderstands or discusses and negotiates with a regime committed to a certain theology. Um, it, it, it seems like it's not just two different languages, it's two different desired outcomes. Peace to us right. means something very different than peace to them. Right, absolutely. And it's, it's not, uh, you know, it, it, they, they say that um, they want peace, but peace to them is the absolute subordination right. and subjugation of all other, you know, non, non not just non-Muslims, but uh, non-Iranians and Shiites. So it is, uh, 
it is a problem. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it, it, it's a problem that leads to our underestimation. For example, over at CNN, um, you know, the headline is Netanyahu rejects calls for ceasefire. You know, what is a ceasefire to them and what is a ceasefire to the West? And does CNN even understand what it means to be calling for a ceasefire um, if you're Netanyahu, if you're Israel? If God forbid we were in a war, if it was America, why is that? Why is the impetus? Why is the onus for a ceasefire even on those that were attacked rather than the attackers who are still firing rockets? By the way, no one's making that point. Islamic Jihad and Hamas are still firing rockets. Iran is attack- attacking United States uh, fortifications throughout the Middle East as we speak. Um, well. It's because of the fact that um, the United States uh, doesn't seem to understand the nature of. Um, hold on one second. Uh, the United States doesn't seem to understand the nature of um, Islamic terrorism, and um, we're going to have to deal with. Um, we're going to have to deal with the fact that the uh, Iranian regime wants to uh, basically annihilate uh, an entire group of people. And in the West, they don't seem to comprehend it because there is this belief that, uh, you know, we can negotiate uh, in a rational way. But this is not a rational uh, issue that we're dealing with. This is uh, something that is deeper and it is uh, ethnic and religious and we don't seem to understand it our leaders don't understand it the current group leading the country don't understand it and there's this odd weird i i don't know perverse is probably the right word uh misprioritized would be a gentler way to put it but there is this odd onus that this is on israel and the u.s to pull back i mean iran i woke up to the news that iran had fired on u.s bases I wake up right. to the and news to happened, see every morning that Hamas and Islamic Jihad are continuing to fire missiles. There was an attacked party here. There is a defendant, in other words. There is a defendant here. Right. And there's, um, you know, any other group is not required to hold back. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, after Ukraine was attacked, it was we never heard the end of, of how we need to basically court world war with Russia. But now that the Israelis have been attacked, it's as though um, it's as though the, the the onus is now on the victim, and uh, it's just not. Uh, <laughs> this is not a normal. This is yeah, not a that's normal. a hell of an interesting point. I don't remember after Russia's invasion of Ukraine seeing um, New York Times or CNN or seeing really anyone on the right on social media or on the left on social media, saying Ukraine needs to hold back, Ukraine needs to declare a ceasefire. Right. Or, I didn't or, see or it. Taiwan. I just didn't see it. Or Taiwan. Yeah. If Taiwan is attacked, there won't be any calls for that, right. um, except for maybe some people on the far right. But um, there won't be anything like that. It's only Israel that is required to uh, resist its, uh, the, the justified need to respond and retaliate to provocation. Earlier, I was doing a little bit of a history of the region, and uh, I think perhaps, maybe, the problem is that people have become experts on this five minutes ago. 
Um, like, yeah. as Adam Carolla says, people became experts on ivermectin the moment they heard of it, having never heard That's of right. it before. They had That's strong right. opinions on it. Because what I guess underlies some of this, and perhaps this explains some of the distemper on the campuses, to put it no higher, is that people think Israel was the aggressor here. People do think Israel right. is well, occupying I Gaza. I think we've spoken about that before, yeah. which yeah. is that, you know, for all the talk about it being an open-air prison right. in Gaza, right. I seem to remember the Israelis pulling out in 2004 and not having a single troop uh, in, in Gaza since that time. And the only reason there was a blockade initiated was because of actual threats emanating from Hamas. I mean, in May of 2021, as you know, chapter 11 of my book, mm-hmm. I talk about how um, in May of 2021, there was, I think it was 10 or 12 days of, of missiles mm-hmm. were launched by Hamas mm-hmm. into Israel. Mm-hmm. And the expectation back then was that Israel just takes it. Mm-hmm. And this is a continual theme. And, uh, you know, at some point, Israel has to, uh, uh, you know, protect its own territory and citizenry. Now, the question is, is a ground war going to be the resolution they think it will be? Unfortunately, I don't think it will be. And it wasn't for when we went after al-Qaeda. We got 20 years of, you know, endless war and al-Qaeda and ISIS are now more spread out and more, uh, you know, I would say stronger in some ways than they were before 9-11. Um, you know, there's something to be said about a massive aerial campaign uh, that avoids the pitfalls of another Fallujah. Uh, uh, yes, I, th- this is really the issue I've been thinking most about, and I want to go to break and, and po- pose it to you on the commercial. We'll come back on the point, Brandon, but it is very much this point, which is no matter how Israel fights this war, whether it's an aerial bombardment or whether it is door-to-door on a ground force level, let's remember that 44% of Gazans voted for Hamas and the rest voted for Fatah in 06. Fatah is not exactly a communion of saints. The reason the West Bank and Abbas won't hold elections is they know they'd lose to Hamas. No matter what Israel does, aerial bombardment or ground war, This is not going to be Japan 1946 after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the Japanese wanting to affiliate and associate with their those those who defeated them. The Gazans are not going to be pacified no matter how much Israel wins. That's a conundrum, to say the least. Love your thoughts on that when we come back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Brandon Weikert is our guest, among other books, The Shadow War, Iran's Quest for Supremacy. Brandon, the only point I was making right before the break that makes this such a conundrum is no matter what kind of victory Israel has, whether it's a ground war, whether it's aerial, whether it's a combination of either or both, um, it's not going to be like Japan, Germany, and Italy after World War II. The defeated are not going to want to sidle up to their victors and become their allies. There is a toxin, there is a poison, there is a grievance culture that will never say, okay, now let us be friends and engage in trade and peace. That's just not going to happen it's, here. It's not. It's right. not. I mean, look, look. The, like I said before the break, Israel pulled out no four. Right. They let they let the the Palestinian Arabs of Gaza Strip become self determinant. And what did they choose? They chose Hamas, an Islamist organization dedicated to the eradication of their neighbors in Israel. Um, and then, of course, Hamas pulled up the ladder behind them to prevent any other form of election from taking place. Um, you know, they've had 15 years to get their act together. 
And for 15 years, they have cultivated and nursed, uh, you know, an anti-Israeli rage that has now manifested itself uh, in those awful attacks a few weeks ago. And, and again, if you if you read my book and, and when when you look at the data sets that I, I was able to glean from researching this issue, uh, Hamas and Hezbollah, Fatah, Islamic Jihad, they're all working together. They were brought together in December of 2016 in Beirut by our old friend General Qasim Soleimani, who was the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps Quds Force commander. And from that moment on, they decided to pull their resources together. This is back in 2016 uh, to initiate a third intifada against Israel. And uh, that is precisely what we are experiencing now. This is not an isolated event. This is part of a wider pattern of aggression. Uh, and Israel really it isn't even, as much as they say it is, it's really not even about Israel. For Iran, this is uh, also about pushing American power out of the region and replacing it with their own. Yeah, and I don't, I, I, yeah, and, and so that's really what the stakes are. I mean, there will be either ongoing war and a defense line of some form or another, or an understanding to that capitulation, right? I mean, that those are the stakes. This notion that a ceasefire will solve anything, this notion that giving up more territory will solve anything, right. is this notion right. that, I mean, look, when people are marching from the river to the sea, that's right. really that's, the sentiment. That's a genocidal, that, that's a genocidal but that is monster. the sentiment. It's no Israel. Right. It's not. It's right. not a two state. The two state solution is in the rearview mirror and very far in the rearview. Well, there mirror. is no two state right. solution. There is only a three state solution. Uh, the Palestinian Arabs should be completely reabsorbed by the Egyptians, the Jordanians, the Syrians. They should not even still be where they are. They have proven incapable of living alongside their, their Jewish Israeli neighbors. It's, it's interesting because there's actually a, a fairly large minority group of Arabs in Israel who vote in the Knesset, who are actually upstanding citizens in the Israeli democracy. Uh, in fact, if I'm not mistaken, I believe it was Netanyahu's party at one point in the last couple of years had an alliance with this uh, Arab-Israeli mm -hmm. party in the Knesset. So it, it isn't even a question of uh, you know, uh, Jewish-Arab relations, it's been proven that is Israel can absorb and, and have uh, fair dealings with Arabs. It's this particular set of people who are governed by an Islamist ethos that does not allow for any form of compromise with their neighbors, and they are acting on behalf of a foreign power, in this case the Islamic Republic of Iran, and it, they are being used as cannon fodder by... Uh, uh, a foreign power in Iran. So can you fight the rings or do you have to fight the Lord? That's the question. Well, the issue now is what, because, you know, Israel right now is striking targets deep inside of Syria. And, and, and the question is, and in Lebanon, and the question is, as they're committing over 100,000 troops indefinitely to the south in Gaza, what can they do to protect their northern and their eastern flanks. That requires uh, a larger military than what they have. They can certainly do these early strikes, but at some point, logistically, they're going to be worn out. And I think that's also the point. And so the question is, what can the United States do to facilitate uh, a, a successful Israeli defense without getting bogged down in another even worse form of war uh, than we had in Iraq? Um, and this is why I said, uh, uh, you know, a couple weeks ago, we should be looking at 
if Hezbollah does open a true second front from the north, we should be targeting those supply chains coming out of Iran, going through Iraq and Syria into Lebanon. And that, that's the, that's, as long as we are tethering ends, ways, and means the way that we did not do in Iraq, that is the solution here. That is how we help Israel move forward, and that is how we also prevent ourselves from becoming bogged down. How smart, by the way, Brandon, how smart or how good is Iran at understanding American public opinion? So when they see the student protests or what I call genocide marches, and when they see the New York Times and CNN, how, how do they read that as thinking they can war or they can win through an attrition of public opinion? Here? I wouldn't be surprised if Iran is funding these these okay. protests. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if the Chinese are as well. We know during the uh, uh, race riots three years ago that in uh, what was it Houston, the Chinese consulate had their agents arrested inciting mm-hmm. uh, violent protests mm-hmm. in, in among the BLM and Antifa protesters in Houston. Uh, and so this is this is a pretty normal operation that uh, rivals will undertake, espionage, um, and uh, it would behoove the Iranians to, for a handful of cash, uh, you know, fund some of these and, and gin up some of these anti-Israeli uh, sentiments from within uh, the Western countries. They do they think well. A do they think our public opinion is soft, and B. Is our public opinion soft for these things? Are we on a war footing? Do we have a culture that is willing and ready and even understands the stakes that you write about? Well, I think I think that some do and some don't. And I think this is the problem. We saw this in Vietnam. And, and I think this is the biggest issue we're facing is that uh, there's no unified uh, understanding. You have some people who, who comprehend what I'm talking about. Then you have some people who just will not believe. And uh, in fact, in some cases, they're operating in complete opposition uh, to what I think is moral and right and strategic. I think that's also important to note that in the buildup to World War II in the 1920s and 30s, America was also deeply divided. There were large numbers of people that were pro-German. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, you know, Hitler's favorite di- diplomat was uh, the class of 1909 Harvard, and mm-hmm. he was a member and up- upstanding uh, with the Harvard um, alumni as well as um, uh, with uh, the, the many people in Washington D.C. at the time. And so we have to remember that that you know we have. Have these periods of division and our enemies will absolutely exploit them why wouldn't they it's it's no cost for them to do that really well okay let me take a quick break because then the next question it seems to me as we're thinking linearly through this the next question is and maybe this is directed toward the american right but the next question to think through is what can america do um that 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 shows iran we're serious but does not you know does not launch us into World War III in the sense that the America First and the Joe Kennedys that you're talking about in the 1920s and 1930s didn't want us to be involved in what was becoming World War II. Brandon Weikert and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Brandon Weikert is my guest. W-E-I-C-H-E-R-T is how he spells his last name. His most recent book, uh, the Shadow War, Iran's Quest for Supremacy, author of several books, very active on Twitter, uh, at we the Brandon, and, uh, of course, a senior uh, editor at 1945.com. 
So, Brendan, yeah, there's this notion, right, that there's always been an isolationism in America, sometimes for better uh, motives, sometimes for worse motives. But let's take them at their best of motives and say we don't want to and we can't really afford to engage in another world war right now mm-hmm. or God forbid really we might maybe not have ever. A choice. Right. Yeah. Um but maybe we don't have to. Maybe there are things we can do vis-a-vis Iran that doesn't draw that but maybe well, we can't. Maybe 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 that's wrong. I don't know. We've been at this well, the window, for 40 the years. The window of opportunity yeah. is closing very quickly. Yeah. It may have already closed. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the Trump administration, you know, tr- Trump, as you know, I'm critical of. But um, the one thing he figured out pretty quickly, and I was just doing a podcast with Dr. Scheuer, Michael Scheuer, in the CIA, formerly in the CIA, Bin Laden unit earlier today. And we were talking about this um, for his Two Mics podcast. And, and we were we were talking about how, despite having absolutely no foreign policy background and whatever you may think about him, he did understand Trump did the Middle East. And, um, and it might have been because of dealing in that New York development, you know, background. I don't know, but he he fundamentally seemed to understand. And that was how we had the Abraham Accords plus uh, the maximum pressure campaign on Iran. And that actually bought us time. It allowed us to start to bring together our regional partners in a way that George W. Bush and Barack Obama could never do. Um, without starting another war and without just giving up the region. Uh, it was a perfect middle way approach. Um, and uh, again, it, it married ends, ways, and means, which is something that D.C., as you know, doesn't do very well anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, once Trump was out of office, Biden went to work on dismantling that entire uh, organization that Trump had started. And it was I don't think it was anything more than just they wanted to do the opposite of what the much maligned Trump had done. I said this to you before, yep. orange man, bad, bad syndrome. Sure. Uh, you know, so it's anything more than that, that he did, yeah. of yeah. course. Right. But anything more than that, any, anything that he did, they were going to do the opposite of. And, of course, then they hired these people like Bob Malley. Uh, Bob Malley, is, uh, turns out, was on the payroll of Iranian intelligence, and he's been the architect of the Obama-era nuclear agreement with Iran, and then he was brought in by Biden to run the Iran policy shop for the White House. Mm -hmm. And he was one of the key architects behind the last three years in the Middle East, which is why we have such disarray. In a recent article at 1945.com, I wrote about how, um, you know, the first two world wars were waged over Germany's place in, in Europe. Right. Uh, the the Third World War will likely be waged over Iran's place in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Um, Iran is not like the other countries of the Middle East. They are neither Arab nor Sunni Muslim. They are Shiite Persians, and that makes them fundamentally different, and they have a very different view of the world from even their fellow uh, religion, co-religionists in, in the Sunni uh, Muslim community. And so that puts them at odds with the Sunni Muslims. It also puts them at odds with the Jews of Israel. And it puts them at odds with the United States, the Europeans, and the rest of the West. And they're not going to just back down. We've had 20 years now of American military operations in the Middle East. And each time, the Iranians seem to get stronger and stronger rather than weaker and weaker. And we had in Biden this attempt to bring Iran out of its box and treat it like a normal country. 
And as I said at the beginning of this segment with you, Iran's government is not a normal government. They are run by ideologues. Yeah, that's the problem that I don't think America quite understands. Maybe the West in toto doesn't understand is the ideology, the ideologic nature of the regime we're fighting against. It's kind of an odd thing. I have to take a break and we'll have a longer segment coming up if that's cool with you. Yes. Yeah, great. Because it's it's odd that a country that doesn't really believe in itself or that has spent so much time in self-deprecation and denigration like ours is up against Nihilism. right is up against a country that is fundamentally <laughs> of the strong belief that they have not only all the truth on their side but that they can do no wrong. It's almost as if you have a weak horse challenged by a strong horse, not even a weak horse that wants to challenge the strong horse, a weak horse that is challenged by a strong horse, and we don't know what to do. Do do we have institutions? Are our intelligence capabilities there? Do we have um, the ability to train governments in exile? Do we have ability to do what Reagan did in funding opposition on the ground in these countries? It seems to me that's what a serious country would be doing. I don't know if we're a serious country. I do know Iran is. Brandon, maybe you can answer that when we come back. Brandon Weichert is our guest, W-E-I-C-H-E-R-T. Follow him on Twitter, X, Twix, at We the Brandon. His most recent book, The Shadow War, Iran's Quest for Supremacy. All right, Brandon. So um, a country that is serious about itself and serious about its designs and serious about the belief in its cause, its cause being righteous to itself, up against, talking about Iran, could be talking about Hamas too, up against a country um, like ours, which is um, full of self-doubt and which is routinely um, castigating itself when it's not spending time on the couch analyzing how bad it is. You have a weak horse up against a strong horse. does this change? Am I misreading it? And do we have the institutions and abilities, even in a non-kinetic way, to fight this strong horse, whether it's training governments in exile, whether it's funding opposition groups, whether it's doing the kinds of things Reagan did in Eastern Europe in the Cold War? Well, this is exactly what I was getting at when I was talking about the difference between the Trump approach yeah. to the Middle East and right. the Biden approach, which is that, you know, Trump actually, which is hilarious given what they say about him, brought the institutions together to come up with a non-military ideological counterattack to Iran's growing power and supremacy in the region. Um, whereas Biden has basically ripped that apart and has replaced it with nothing. His only contribution is to empower Iran more, which then in turn threatens not only our allies, but also threatens us. Um, And so the question is, do we have the institutions? If we have the right leadership, uh, I believe we do. But the problem now is we're, we're now so deep into this crisis, and I don't believe it's going to end anytime soon. Um, It's only going to get worse, if anything, that by the time if there is a new president in 2024, it might be too late. We might already be locked in. You know, Thomas Sowell talks about in the economy, he talks about the point of no return, reaching a tipping point. And I think that we might be reaching that now. And so the question is, institutionally, do we have it? I I don't know. And the reason I don't know is because, um, you know, the fourth turning is what um, a lot of people talk about right now, which is we're in an era of crisis. And out of that crisis, 
in, or in that crisis that we will basically shake loose all of our norms and replace it or attempt to replace it with something more relevant to our current problem set. Um, and so what we are going through right now for the last decade or so, I think, is that fourth turning. And part of fourth turning is abandoning institutional norms. Mm-hmm. And so I, I don't know if we have any more. I mean, from when I worked in government, uh, you know, certainly I could see it back then when the, the system was breaking down. Um, and some would say back then it was already broken. Uh, so I, I don't know. I think that a key thing is the leadership. And right now we do not have a good leader. And the problem facing, for instance, Trump is that you know, he is he is very controversial and, you know, he is definitely not a unity candidate. Right. And so I don't know, uh, you know, as a as an alternative to what we have now, I just don't know if we have anybody in the offing who could restore institutional faith uh, without some massive crisis breaking everything in the process. Uh, uh. Okay, so domestic politics, uh, obviously, which determines everything else. Yes. Yeah, yes. you're not optimistic. Which, right which now. foreign policy types, you know, that is the world I come from. They don't like to talk about domestic policy because they silo it, but it's actually linked. Right. You know, ob- you know, it should be obvious that whoever's running the show in D.C. Uh, is going to be determining foreign policy, regardless of what sort of autopilot we have running from the permanent bureaucracy. I mean, this was why they fought Trump so hard, because even though there's a permanent, you know, so-called deep state or administrative state, at some point the president has the power to influence things uh, and change them away from what the permanent bureaucracy prefers. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, you know, and Biden is, uh, you know, he's reinforcing the worst behaviors uh, of the D.C. class. Um, and I don't know if Trump were to be elected again. I don't know if he has the ability to to reverse course as suddenly as would be needed by the time a new president were sworn in in January 2025. There is a deep state and there's a deep state. I don't know if it's deeper and darker than in these foreign policy institutions, Brandon. I agree. CIA I agree. state uh, particularly. Yeah. That's well, State Department's a mess. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, this is the third time I've said that today. State Department's yep. a complete mess. C- right. CIA has become a, 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 a breeding ground of, of anti American ideological yep. bloodlust. Yep. Um, I mean, remember, CIA is the one that, that is totally fine with Iran getting the bomb and Iran, you know, running roughshod over the region. It's my friends at DIA who seem to have somewhat of a problem. The NSA is. Uh, maybe been given too much power, but I think that they institutionally are a very strong organization, still rooted in some kind of pro-American ethos. Uh, and then the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, NGA, that's another decent group of people. But there's, you know, what, 15 other alphabet soup that's agencies right. out there. You know, and, and the ones that I listed are nowhere, with the exception of the NSA, nowhere near the most powerful or the most illustrious. The CIA, FBI, they take all the, the credit for things, and they've been really messing up. And then there's state, as you said, State Department is a complete disaster. In fact, they tend to make things worse, not better. Yeah, I'm reminded of something Jesse Helms once said when he was head of foreign relations back in the day, and someone said, why are you so against funding of State Department? He said, I'm not against funding of State Department. I just want them to open up an American desk. American desk, yeah, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's true, and we desperately need that because we don't have – our own interests are not being looked out for in, among the 
elite in Washington D.C. They have more in common with uh, you know people in 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 Brussels than they do Bismarck. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and it's uh, it's a problem because we are now on the precipice. I think truly of a third world war breaking out in the Middle East. We already see Turkey now. Uh, Israel has cut off ties with Turkey. Turkey is doing live fire exercises in the uh, uh, carrier battle group that we have uh, in Eastern Med. They're doing live fire exercises toward uh, uh, the, the two aircraft carrier groups that we have. And Turkey is, of course, a NATO country. Yep. So, you know, what, what do we do in right. that situation? You know, and, and they're going after Israel. They've made very clear that they are on the side of the Palestinians. Sure. And, that, and, and there's real talk that that Turkey will start taking military action against Israel if they think Israel goes too far. And so this is all the makings of a world war, and we don't have the people in charge in D.C. who can do anything other than just passively watch it happen. And and give one-word answers to reporters when they hear the question. Brandon Weikert, you're the best man. Thanks for being with us as you are every Monday. Really appreciate you. Yep. All right. Thanks, buddy. Brandon Weikert, uh, author of several books, most recently— Uh, The Shadow War, Iran's Quest for Supremacy. I'll be back with a closing thought. Portions of this show brought to you by the good people of Y-Refi. They are a good people. They are active in our community, and they have a hell of an investment for you. It's an investment in a portfolio with a high fixed rate return, and should you be concerned about stock market volatility or inflation, for that matter, bank failures. It's not correlated to the stock market or the Federal Reserve, and it has a ton of flexibility. It's a portfolio where you can turn your monthly income on or off. You can compound it, whatever you like, with no penalty if you need your money back at any time. No fees in this secure collateralized portfolio from YReFi. They are a due diligence approved firm, and you can earn up to a 10.25% rate of return. That's right, a 10.25% fixed rate of return. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com. Or give them a call at 888-YREFI24. That's 888-YREFI24. There are going to be so many questions about the time we're living in. And I am so grateful to um, young David, a.k.a. Grasshopper, a.k.a. uh, David Dahl, uh, for raising one of the most interesting ones that we teased out a little bit on Friday and um, a little bit today. You know, 50 years is a blink of an eye when you read world history over the course of centuries or millennia. You know, you read these ancient history books or whatever, and 50-year period seems like almost nothing, not even its own chapter. And you think about the past 50 years here, or really even perhaps the past 100 years here, or at least since World War II— it's the blink of an eye, but a lot is happening. I mean, a ton is happening when you think of everything from, oh, I don't know, uh, Hiroshima, well, World War II and Hiroshima, Nazi Germany, um, to the man on the moon, to the civil rights movement, to obviously the assassinations and the unrest, to everything we've seen um, since the collapse and the fall of the Berlin Wall, to the rise of China. I mean, this is a lot. And now, obviously, what's going on in the Middle East, it's a lot. It's a, it's a lot of stressors over the last, you know, 50, 60 years that otherwise, when the history books are written, um, 100 years from now, 200 years from now, 300 years from now, will look like the blink of an eye. Um, and how we will be remembered 
for what we did here, kind of the question Reagan posed at the 1976 convention, whether people will be able to read as to what was done here, will determine, in fact, what we do here and the decisions we make today. Stakes couldn't be higher. We better get it right. Try and do it with you here every day. So glad you tune in to help us out with it and take part in it. David, until tomorrow and the rest of you, God bless. I'm Seth Liebson and class dismissed.